Return, if you would, in your Bible to John chapter 3 in the passage that we read this morning. So today, being the 26th, day after Christmas, it's a little bit of a question, well, you know, was this, are we Christmas? Are we on towards the new year yet? And so I want to revisit uh, part of the Christmas story, maybe from an angle that uh, is not directly the, the Christmas story, the angels and the shepherds and all of that, but rather to ask the question, why did Jesus come? You know, on December 25th, we remember that Jesus did come, and that he did come is an established fact. I think very few people would dispute the fact that Jesus was, in fact, born. But it's a slightly different question to ask the questions of how or why. Because now we're getting into the purposes and reasons for it. That Jesus was born is just a fact. But why? And this is true not just of Jesus' birth, but of historical questions in general. I mean, there's lots of things we could assert by way of fact. You could say that Martin Luther King Jr. died. Okay, that is a fact. But how did he die? Well, he was, he was shot. Why? And, and of course, without getting into conspiracy theories and that sort of thing, one of the reasons he died was because he was a leader in the civil rights movement. So now we're getting into a bigger question of why did this happen? You know, it's one thing to say Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yes, but why? Why was he born? Well, that's where I think John 3 can be of big help to us. You know, in the aftermath of all of our celebrations this week and remembering Christmas and remembering the fact that Jesus was born, we want to revisit the reason he was born. And John 3, 16 and following is one of the most familiar texts in the Bible. In fact, uh, it's very likely you may have quoted or memorized uh, this passage of Scripture. And rightfully so. It's, it's a magnificent portion. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther once called this verse, the, the Bible in miniature, that God so loved the world. And, and it's very well known, but oftentimes because of that, it's been extracted from its context in Scripture. We know John 3.16, but you probably don't have John 3.17 memorized, if you know what I mean. Now, what we want to do today is look at John 3.16, but also look at it within its context, because I believe it gives us an answer to the question, why did Jesus come? And to put it very plainly in a sentence, Jesus came to give eternal life to those who would receive him. Jesus came to give eternal life to those who would receive him. Paul says it elsewhere very succinctly in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's the whole message. He came to save. He came to save sinners. But as we study this passage, I think we should also highlight another side of this as well. Not that Jesus came to give eternal life to everyone who would receive him, but also this. Only those who receive Christ will experience eternal life. Only those who receive him and believe. Now, if you have studied the Gospel of John for at all, you'll notice that the themes of belief and unbelief play prominently into the book. So John is very concerned with how we respond to Jesus, do we believe or do, are we unbelievers? And this belief, as it's articulated in John's gospel, is not just 
uh, an acknowledgement of fact. It's not just an acknowledgement of saying, okay, yes, that happened. But rather, a trusting of yourself, a commitment to that truth. It's leaning one's self on that truth. So it's more than just belief. It's a trusting belief. One must receive Christ. It's not just a a passive kind of, oh, I I acknowledge a few facts, but receiving him. John writes in John 1.12, As many as received them, to them he gave the right to be called sons of God. This very theme of believing, receiving, and eternal life that plays into John chapter 3. Now you might recall... In John chapter 3, it's in the context of Jesus having a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a a leader of the Jews, one of the members of the Sanhedrin. And apparently, Nicodemus had some interest in Jesus. Whereas most of the Jewish leaders were opposed to him, Nicodemus seems at least curious about what Jesus believes and what he's saying and what he's teaching. So the Bible says that Nicodemus came to Christ by night. Now, the significance of him coming by night is, uh, has been drawn out by people before, and I don't know how much significance we can put to it, but it's probably likely that Nicodemus comes by night so that he can avoid the ire of his comrades, the other Jewish leaders who were stridently opposed to Jesus. So he goes by night, and, and This way he can really engage with Jesus and ask the questions he really wants to know instead of just the party lines that he's been given. And Nicodemus is somewhat confused by Jesus' teaching. Jesus famously says, you must be born again. And that kind of takes Nicodemus back a little bit. Must be born again, what what does that mean? Well, we know that it's actually a very powerful analogy for salvation. Because people, as the Bible describes them, are not people in need of a renovation. We're not in need of a few little changes. You know, Jesus can kind of fix up your life. Uh, The gospel is not just, we can be better people, but it's rather a total change of the heart, a transformation that must take place through the power of the cross. So it's being born again. And I would also say that birth is another fitting analogy for salvation because when a person is born into the world, what what part do they have in their own birth? Again, some people have the idea that salvation is sort of uh, God's effort, God's grace, plus the the conjuring of our own strength and our own good works, etc. But again... What, what does a baby contribute to their own birth? No, they're just, they're a passive participant. They're, they are born, the work is all the mother. And so in the case of the new birth, it is the work of God, not our own doing. We are helpless. So Nicodemus is kind of taken aback by all this language of new birth and, and redemption and eternal life. And then we get down to John three sixteen. Now, in my Bible, I have a red-letter edition of the Bible, so it has all of the words of Jesus in red. And in my Bible, all the way down to verse 21 is all red, assuming that Jesus said all of this. Now, in the original language in Greek, there are no quotation marks anywhere. And so we're left to try and to kind of determine a little bit of, okay, is, is this all a quote from Jesus, or is this John sort of uh, 
taking a, an, a, an aside here or a uh, kind of explaining what Jesus is talking about. <clears throat> I believe starting in verse 16 and following is not Jesus' quotation, but rather John's explanation of what Jesus is saying. Now, it's no less scripture. It's, it's every bit as inspired by the Holy Spirit as Jesus' words. But I do think it's, it's stepping back a bit as John explains to us what did Jesus mean by all of this? What did he mean when he said that he must be, the Son of Man must be lifted up? What did he mean that uh, we must have faith in order to have eternal life? So this verse 16 kind of launches into an explanation, and it really gets into an explanation of why did Jesus come in the first place? Well, I want to break this passage down into three purposes for Christ's coming. Three purposes that Jesus came. Number one, Jesus came for the world. Jesus came for the world. I want to look at John 3.16. Again, many of you could quote this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So why did Jesus come? Perhaps we ought to reframe the question slightly based on this verse. And maybe we should ask, why did God send Jesus? Because you notice God is the, the subject here. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. Now, that word for there at the beginning indicates sort of an explanation. And that's why I think this is John's kind of explanation on the words of Jesus. He's saying, now let me explain for God so loved the world. But the subject is God, not Jesus. It's not that Jesus came into the world and, and gave himself, although that is true. But it's rather that God is the one who initiates this process, that God sent his son, and this is how he shows his love. In fact, uh, you'll see in verse 16, for God so loved the world. Now that, that little word so there uh, does not indicate primarily extent in other words, it's not saying that God loved the world so much that he did this. Although, again, that is true to an extent. The word so there is actually indicating the, the, the how of God's love. How did God show his love? Well, he showed it by sending his son. And this, is, this is how God's love is expressed. So it's not so much extent, but rather manner of his love. So the subject is God himself. The verb is love, right? For God so loved the world. John uses the, the word agape here, which uh, I think John uses agape more than any of the other New Testament writers. And love, as it's described here, is an unselfish, benevolent, self-giving love without reference to the object. Now, what I mean by that, without reference to the object, it doesn't mean that the object doesn't matter. But rather, God loves regardless of the love returned from the object. Again, most of the love that we talk about in kind of our American culture is a reciprocal kind of love. Well, you know, I love, I love you because you love me, and you love me because I love you, and sort of round and round it goes. And that's why we find it very difficult to love people who give little in return. 
In fact, uh, we'll even refer to, to such people as kind of like uh, takers or, um, you know, we might say of some relative, you know, maybe, maybe somebody you saw this week, I don't know, but you might say, oh, that person is, they're hard to love. And indeed, people can be. But God loves not based upon the faithfulness, the goodness, the loveliness of the object. Why? Because he loves the world. A good example will be to look back at the Old Testament. The Old Testament, God is revealed as a God of love who loves and keeps covenant with Israel. Now, if you've ever cracked open the Old Testament, you will know that Israel was not always faithful, loving, and good to God. In fact, many times they are in rebellion to God. They are in idolatry, worshiping false gods rather than worshiping the Lord. And yet, God's love for his people was not based upon their obedience or their good character. Time and time again, they abandoned the Lord, and yet God continued to remain faithful and to love Israel despite their infidelity. So what I'm saying with John 3.16 is the Bible that says God so loved the world, it's a God-type love. It's not a, it's not a kind of a us-type love, the kind of love that we often talk about. But a God-type love. But what I mainly want to consider is the object. John 3.16. For God so loved what? He loved the world. There's a universality to this word. God loved the cosmos. Uh, it refers to the whole cosmos of man. In particular, this would be a, like a, a kind of a bombshell to Nicodemus. Because, yes... God sent his son for the Jews. God sent his son for his people to redeem them, to defeat our enemies and to you know, bring in his kingdom. But the world, the Gentiles, they, they were the enemy. Those were the people that, that the Christ was supposed to crush under his foot. What do you mean God loves the world? But that's the very point of the verse. God's love is not restricted to the Jews or any particular people, time, or place. God loves the world. Now, usually when John uses the word world, he's talking about the sinful world apart from God. And in some sense, that fits here. And that's what makes it so shocking. God loves the world, which is not really in love with him. God loved sinners. Again, we read in Romans, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus came for the world. And that's, that should be good news to us, shouldn't it? God loves the world because, number one, we're part of the world. If the world includes sinful men, such were all of us, right? That we are sinners, as the Bible declares. We were going astray, but God demonstrated his love in sending his son. And how should we respond? Well, the Bible says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So whoever believes, the response of faith, will escape death and find everlasting life. How do you do that? By believing on the Son. So thank God for Jesus coming into the world. Thank God for this good news that the world needs. Jesus came not just for the Jew, but also the Gentile, not just for the white but black and brown and every color in between. God did not just come for Israel, but for Rome and Greece and England and America. Jesus came for the world. 
It's good news for everyone. In fact, as the angel said on that first Christmas, we bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be not just for you, not just for Bethlehem, not just for Israel, but for all people. You know, John 3.16 really captures the wholeness of the gospel. God loved the world. He gave his son. We must respond in faith. You know, it could be easy to skip past this verse just because it's so famous. But it's good news. Famous evangelist D.L. Moody uh, once visited the United Kingdom, and when he was there, he, he met a young preacher named Henry Morehouse. Now, young Mr. Morehouse was kind of an up-and-coming preacher, and, and Moody wasn't sure what to think of him. Wasn't sure uh, if he was really all that. Well, despite that, Moody always looked for opportunities to invest in younger preachers, and uh, Morehouse was one. And so he offered, he said, if you're ever in Chicago, if you're ever in America, come by and, and I'll let you give you an opportunity to preach. Well, a few years passed and Henry Morehouse showed up in Chicago and Moody kept his word, but he still wasn't entirely sure. He gave the man a couple of days to preach. And it was a couple of days that he was going to be out of town, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And as Moody left for that weekend, he told the officers of the church there's a man coming here on Thursday and Friday who wants to preach. I don't know whether or not he can, but you'd better let him try and I'll be back on Saturday. When Moody returned on that Saturday, he asked his wife how this young Irish preacher had done. And she reported that he had preached both nights on John 3.16. And that they were some of the best messages she'd ever heard. Well, Moody, still kind of wondering if this guy could preach, showed up on Saturday night. And Morehouse began. This is what he said. My friends, if you will turn to the third chapter of John, the 16th verse, you will find my text. Moody was a little bit surprised to hear this guy was preaching from John 3.16 three nights in a row. Nevertheless, his preaching touched the, the great preacher, and Moody was moved by the discussion of God's love. Afterwards, D.L. Moody said, I never knew up to that time that God loved us so much. This heart of mine began to thaw out, and I could keep, not keep back tears. It was like the news from a far country. I drank it in. So Morehouse stayed for seven nights, and for six of those nights he preached from John 3.16 over and over and over again. And Moody later recalled, he said, The seventh night came, and when he, when he, went, when he went into the pulpit, every eye was on him. Everyone was anxious to know what he was going to preach about. He stood up and said, My friends, I have been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find one as good as this one, so we will go back to the third chapter of uh, John and the 16th verse. And he preached a seventh sermon from John 3.16. My point in all that illustration is simply to say this, that this is an inexhaustible well. God so loved the world. That's why Jesus came to redeem the world. He came for the world. But let me give you a second thought, which comes out of John 3.16 and what follows. That is, not only did Jesus come for the world, he came to save. He came to save. You may remember, the name Jesus itself means God saves. In one of our Christmas songs that we sing, there's a ringing chorus which says, Christ was born to save Christ was born to save. Look at verses 17 and 18 very quickly. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So in a passage that tells us so much about why Jesus came, I think it's interesting, verse 17 begins with a reason why Jesus did not come. Or excuse me, a reason, I don't know if I said that right. You get what I'm saying though. It explains here what Jesus did not come to do. He did not come to condemn, it says. He didn't come to condemn the world. Now, some people might take that a step too far and just say, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus just came bringing positive energy, you know, and he was just this really positive person who never had anything bad to say about anything, was always kind of encouraging to everyone. No, Jesus spoke about sin. And Jesus spoke hard truths at times. But he didn't come to condemn. Why not? Well, The text explains. He didn't have to come to condemn. The world was already condemned, it says in verse 18. If you don't believe in the Son, then you're condemned already. You see, people had two things. They had the scriptures, and they had their own conscience, both of which told them loudly and clearly, you're not right with God. What you do is is breaking God's law. What, you, what you're doing is not good. Again, you've had that ping in your own conscience. When you've done something, you say, you know what? I, that was foolish. That was wrong. And again, some people have seared their conscience so badly as to hardly notice it anymore, but everyone has one. And that conscience reminds us that we are not right with the Lord. There is a judge who will judge the world. Not only that, we have scripture, we have the word of God, which tells us that we are sinners, that we have fallen short, that no one is righteous, not one. So the world is already condemned. Jesus didn't need to come to just say, hey world, you're going to hell. That that was already plain. What they needed was somebody to come in and and do something about it, to save. You know, as we think about uh, verse 17, it says, He did not come to the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The world is condemned already in verse 18. Think of it like this, that all of humanity is kind of packed on a train that's running towards a cliff. And the tracks run right off the side of the cliff. So what do you have to do to be condemned on that train? Well, nothing. You're already on the train. I mean, all you have to do is just ride it to the end of the tracks and and you will perish. So... We don't need somebody behind the train to kind of help push it off. What Jesus does is he comes alongside the train and says, jump. I'll catch you. I'm rescuing you from the train. See, all of humanity is condemned. They're already headed towards the cliff. Jesus came, however, to save those who would believe. And indeed, he does. You see, if you go down a few verses in John John 3, verse 36... It says there, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not believe on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, it's already there. You're already under the wrath. There's a way, however, to be free from it. That's why Jesus came to save. You notice in verse 17, it says that the world through him might be saved. Folks, that's the only way is through him. That's the only way the world can be saved. 
or people can be saved. It's through Christ. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which you must be saved. John Dyer, a Welsh poet and pastor, once wrote, A man can go to heaven without health, without riches, without honors, without learning, without friends, but he can never go there without Christ. So in answering this important question, you know, why did Jesus come? He came to save, but there's also another question that's being answered here in verses 17 and 18. And that is, if God so loves the world that he gave his only son, well, why do some perish? You know, if God loved the world, why is the world not saved? You know, that was a question that troubled a man named John Murray in the 1700s. He, along with millions of other people, were influenced by the great preacher George Whitfield. In fact, John Murray eventually joined Whitfield's church in England. But he also came under the influence of another man named Relly, who taught a belief in what was called universalism. And basically, it's this idea that, well, in the end... All will be saved. No one will be condemned in the end. That eventually God's grace will reach every person and everyone will escape punishment. And it has a certain happily ever after ring to it. But it flies in the face of what the Bible teaches. Well, John Murray embraced this universalism. And eventually he was, he was kicked out of the church in England and eventually moved to America where he helped found a church which wedded together two heresies, Unitarianism and Universalism. And if you go to most major cities today, you will find a Unitarian Universalist church somewhere. And indeed, a lot of people are drawn to this idea, well, you know, no one will be condemned. And yet it's clear in Scripture, there will be those who are lost. And here's the line. It's between those who believe and those who reject, those who do not believe in the Son of God. They are condemned already. So there's really two questions I want to ask us at this point. You know, Christ came to save. The question is, are you condemned? Are you condemned? And I think if all of us were to answer, we'd have to say yes. Because all of humanity stands under the wrath of God. You know, all have sinned. But it doesn't have to remain that way. Again, Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So are you condemned? Yes. The more important question, are you redeemed? Those are your two options, condemned or redeemed, belief or unbelief. And that, not race or religion or politics or nationality, separates all of humanity. There are those who are on their way to heaven and those who will perish. See, Christ came to save, not to condemn, not to push the train over the cliff, but to rescue those heading for the cliff. Finally, though, Christ not only came to save sinners, number three, Jesus came to convict. Now, this is a little different than condemn, but it's really a side effect of the fact that Jesus is the light that has come into the world. Wherever light shines, it illuminates. It brings into focus and into sight that which is hidden in darkness. And Jesus has that effect upon the world. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds 
were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So the statement beginning in verse 19 actually does two things. First, it explains the condemnation that already rests on the unbeliever. Jesus came not to condemn. Men are condemned already. Why? How? What is this condemnation? What's their rejection of the light? The rejection of Jesus. Second, though, it explains at least in part why some people are not saved. If God loved the world, Jesus came to save sinners, why are some people not saved? Well, undoubtedly there's more to the answer, but at least, at the very minimum, it's because men love darkness rather than light. They like their sin. They don't want to believe in Jesus because Jesus speaks out against their sin. And they'd rather continue in it. He says in verse 19, the light has come into the world, that is Jesus. But men loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. And they wanted to continue in those evil deeds. They didn't want the light. They didn't want Jesus interrupting their, their personal love affair with their sin. And so they continue on to darkness. Now, in light of verse 19, it seems like, okay, the Bible says all have sin. You know, we love darkness rather than light. So maybe the other side of the question is, how does anybody, why does anybody turn to the light if people love darkness? Well, I think it's a work of God in people's lives. But thankfully, it's not because some people are worse than others. It's not like, oh, well, the really bad people, they love their sin, they love the darkness, so they'll never turn. But, you know, the people who aren't so bad, you know, they, they might be inclined. It's not really how it works, right? In fact, the very next chapter, you have this woman at the well who, you know, has just a scandalous reputation in the, in the neighborhood. And she is pretty thoroughly convinced that she's a sinner. I mean, everybody reminds her of that on an almost daily basis. And yet, she runs to Christ. Rather than loving her sin and turning away, rather than disbelief, she runs to Jesus. Now, why is it that she didn't turn away? Why didn't she love her sin more than Christ? Well, I think, I think it's going to be partially explained in verse 21. But, again, and truthfully, it's the work of God. People reject because their deeds are evil. But not only do they reject the light, not only do they love their sin more, verse 20 says not everyone practicing evil hates the light. It's not they don't just, eh, I don't, I don't care for the light. It's actually that they hate it. They hate Jesus because he comes to expose, right? They hate the light and do not come to light lest his deeds should be exposed. There's something really uh, troubling to us about having our evil exposed. Um, this is true with all of us, right? Where we, uh, we don't really don't like our flaws being put out there for other people to see. You know, we don't like when something wrong we've done is sort of just put out there. Um, sometimes we even find ourselves lying, sinning, to cover up maybe areas that we're, we're failing in or areas that we are uh, kind of living in darkness. And so it is a very uncomfortable thing to be exposed. But it's also a grace of God. You know, it says in uh, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, it says there, 
that uh, the foolish man uh, covers his sin, but the wise man confesses and forsakes it. See, there's, there's a way in which we can try and cover over our sin and try and, you know, continue on in these patterns of darkness and just kind of keep it covered up. It's, it's kind of uncomfortable and it's kind of unpleasant to confess and forsake, but that's the way of life. Here these people hate the light because it exposes them. Uh, William Hendrickson writes on this passage, People of this type resemble loathsome insects that hide themselves beneath logs and stones, preferring the darkness and terribly frightened whenever they're exposed to the light. But look at verse 21. He who does the truth comes to the light and his deeds, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been, been done in God. So he says, he who does the truth. And I think this is part of the person who comes to the light. He who does the truth. It's an odd expression. What does that mean, he who does the truth? Well, it appears one other time in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. And there it seems to mean the person who does the truth is somebody who is forsaking lies. They're choosing not to live by lies. And so in this case, the one who does the truth doesn't put up a false image of themselves, doesn't put up a facade, but instead acknowledges their sinful heart. Uh, Rodney Whitaker describes it this way. It involves not being deceived, having a right evaluation of oneself in relation to God. Do you have a right evaluation of yourself as, as before God? Do you, have you come to the point? That's, in fact, that's what it kind of means to confess Confess means to say the same as. Are we agreeing with God and saying, yes, I, I see myself as you see me, a sinner in need of saving? He says, this is the person who comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God, that God is working in him to bring him to the Lord. So the ministry and life of Jesus is a light which permeates and penetrates us. It is uncomfortable because it reveals who we really are in our hearts. The question is, how do we respond? Do we run from the light or do we run to the light? Do we believe or do we turn away? Do we hate the light and flee from it? Maybe to put it in a slightly different way, do we weep over our sin and our wickedness and cry out to the Lord to save us or do we hang on to the darkness that's within us? Christ was born for this, to save us from this darkness. So the why of Christ's coming is really a question we ought to consider, we ought to think about. Jesus came to offer new life, a new birth to those who would believe. And this is God's expression of love to a lost world. And I think it compels us in, in three ways in which we ought to respond. First, we ought to repent and believe. In other words, if you've never come to receive Christ as your Savior, this is the day. This ought to be the day. Because that offer of life is given to you. Those who believe will be saved. And we can try and get into the theology of it and, and make it complicated, but it's really not. It's simply that. Believe what the Bible says about Christ. Trust him for your salvation, and you will be saved. The Bible says, call upon the name of the Lord, and you will be, not might be, not could be, will be saved. 
So repent and believe. Number two, pray for what loved ones to believe. I'm sure that we all have somewhere in our life people who we know, whom we love, family members, friends, who, uh, quite frankly, some of them may be more obvious than not, but love the darkness, who live in the darkness. And yes, share with them as you can, but pray for them. In fact, that ought to be high on our list of prayer requests, that these dear, precious friends, these loved ones, would come to know Christ as their Savior. And then finally, proclaim the message of God's love. Proclaim the message of God's love. Share it. Not everyone's going to be a preacher, obviously. But there are all opportunities for us to talk of God's love, to share the news of John 3.16. It's such a simple verse. It's such a simple verse. Learn it, know it, share it. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You don't have to know, have all the answers, but you can know John 3.16, and you can tell people, look, God has loved the world. He's loved you. And this offer is made to you. Believe. You will not perish but have everlasting life. Earlier in this message, I mentioned Henry Morehouse, who preached seven consecutive messages on John 3.16. That uh, text, John 3.16, was kind of his calling card throughout life whenever he went around and preached. And as Morehouse lay on his deathbed, he looked up and he told his friends, if it were the Lord's will to raise me up again, I should like to preach from the text, God so loved the world. Again, I don't think we can overuse it. I don't think we can say it often enough because this is why Jesus came into the world, to save sinners, of whom I, of whom all of us are chief.